Hey guys, welcome to MedHub. So we are a group of medical students and we thought that it was really great for us to sit back and learn from podcasts last year. So we thought, why not try and make a podcast for all of you lovely listeners out there? Um, it's definitely not secretly for ourselves so we can review all the content. Exactly, exactly. So welcome. Um, we hope this really helps you guys out. And we hope you guys have a bit of fun and learn a lot of stuff. So we're just going to move to some disclaimers before we get started with our very first episode. We are Australian medical students and this podcast is not a substitute for formal medical education or actual medical advice. This information was mainly sourced from life in the fast lane and up to date, but this is only for educational purposes. We have no conflicts of interest and any resemblance to real cases are purely coincidence. Okay, great. So now we're going to just crack on to the case. So um, also, just before we do, we thought we'd quickly introduce ourselves. So I'm Michael. My name's Molly. I'm Caitlin. And as we've said, we're all med students just here to learn for ourselves and hopefully you guys can learn a thing or two along the way. So today we're going to present a case that just kind of gives you guys a really, really general intro into what medicine is. Um, so we want to talk a bit about general vitals, GCS and urinalysis. So we'll start off with the case. So I want you guys to imagine that you are a JHO, so that's a junior house officer which is just a junior doctor, working in an ED late on a Tuesday night. The ambulance guys bring in an older-looking man who is found wandering the streets in the dark without any shoes on. He is disoriented and can only tell you that his name is Joe. The first-year medical student they let into the hospital with you for some reason turns to you and carefully thinking about their metacognition exclaims, Is this a heart attack? You wonder why they let med students into the hospital before learning the basics of medicine, before getting the med student to take Joe's blood pressure. It comes back as sitting at around 100 over 70 millimetres of mercury and you start to get a little bit worried. So, moving on, what is blood pressure? That's the pressure of blood on the vessel walls. Exactly. Not a super hard concept to start you guys off with. And how exactly do we measure blood pressure? So... I'm guessing everyone's had a blood pressure taker before. So everybody remembers the intense pressure that they put on their arm and when they inflate the cuff. So what that's actually doing is inflating the cuff to a pressure that overcomes your own blood pressure. So what that's going to do is completely uh, constrict the artery and stop blood flow altogether. So they're listening with their stethoscope manually, or I guess the machine does this on automatic ones. And it will slowly release the pressure, bringing it down. And then once, the, once they can hear the very first sound of that turbulent flow, um, that's what they'll mark as the systolic pressure. And then it'll keep going. They'll keep lowering it. And until they can not hear any more sound, because now it's turned into laminar flow, so really smooth, no obstructions, um, that's the diastolic Exactly. So if we if we take a flow on from that great explanation, systolic blood pressure is actually the highest blood pressure that your heart reach, reaches when your heart is mid-pump. The diastolic blood pressure is when your heart is relaxing, and obviously that's going to be a little bit lower, and that's generally maintained more by the elasticity of your arteries. Now, if we combine our systolic and our diastolic pressure, we can get a measure that we call... Mean arterial pressure. Exactly. So the mean arterial pressure is generally found by what equation or what affects it? Uh, so you have the cardiac output 
Um, so that's actually what's driving it. And then once it gets to the blood vessels, you have the total peripheral vascular resistance. Exactly. And at a really, really simple level, cardiac output is literally just how much blood is actually flowing through the heart each minute. Total peripheral resistance is basically just how hard that blood is to get through the vessels. So um, if we go back, what is a normal blood pressure and how does this change with age? Uh, it's 120 over 80. Um, and it just tends to get higher with age. Yep, exactly. So basically, after your heart has been pumping for so many times, um, your aorta especially can only deal with so many contractile cycles. It withstands all of the pressure from the systolic heartbeat and then snaps back in diastolic to maintain that pressure. And after so many cycles of um, damage, you start to get increased collagen there, you lose the springiness of the arteries um which is something that we call elasticity what close it's something that we call (laughs) (laughs) we have our host forgetting a basic term that we are all blanking on compliance compliance Compliance. there we go arterial (laughs) compliance actually reduces and you get an increase in your overall blood pressure and I think we've talked a bit about this already, but what affects the resistance of blood pressure, of blood vessels, total peripheral resistance? Do you mean as in what's controlling it? What What are the kind of things that actually affect it? Basically? Like you have like vasoconstriction and yeah. vasodilation. So if your blood vessels are quite narrow in diameter, obviously that's going to be increased resistance and increase your blood pressure. But if they're vasodilated, so bigger in diameter, more relaxed, lower blood pressure. Yeah, exactly. So on a, on a super basic level, it's essentially just how wide is the pipe. If the pipe is really wide, blood's going to flow through that really easily. You're going to have low resistance. Um, there's actually an equation called Pusiel's equation that measures this. And it's really complicated. But the only really important thing about that equation is that small narrowings can have a really big effect, which is something that I want you guys to keep in mind as we move on. Um, The only other thing we have to talk about is pulse pressure. Does someone want to explain what that is to me? Nope. (laughs) You explain that one, Michael. Okay. So pulse pressure is literally just the difference between your systolic blood pressure and your diastolic blood pressure. It normally sits between about 30 to 40 millimeters of mercury. And the only thing that's really important to remember at this is that it's actually directly proportional to the stroke volume, which means it's a really good way to measure how much blood that heart is actually getting out. And so a lot of conditions that affect that will show up through wide pulse pressures, um, such as aortic regurge. So that's a failure of the aortic valve. You get a bigger pulse pressure because of the backflow back into the chamber, um, meaning you have low diastolic blood pressure. So what are the kind of things? I think I've figured out four main systems in the body that regulate blood pressure do we want to go through each of those yeah so i guess i can think of like the just three main organs involved so we've got the heart we've got the actual vessels and then we've got the kidneys awesome yeah so i think like first of all you've got the heart whether it's like pumping harder has higher cardiac output which would increase the blood pressure um and then you have the kidneys so we're more talking about the raas system the ras system so what what is the ras system 
Um, well, I think the pathway is a bit too long to explain, but predominantly you have low blood flow to the kidneys and that's going to trigger the release of renin and there's this whole pathway it goes down to eventually get to aldosterone and that's going to uh, increase your blood pressure and cause vasoconstriction. Yeah, exactly. So aldosterone actually binds to a particular part of the kidney called the distal tubule, increases the amount of sodium potassium pumps you've got there keeps sodium in the blood sodium drags the water with it and it's going to shoot your blood volume specifically up really high um you were talking about the autonomic nervous system before caitlin and the actual heart pumping um molly do you want to talk to us a little bit about that what controls that so in the autonomic nervous system you have two divisions so your parasympathetic and your sympathetic so basically you've probably heard this a million times but uh, parasympathetic is you rest and digest, so really nice and slow and relaxed. And then your sympathetic is your fight or flight. So that's like stress of any kind, whether it's mental or in front of you. Um, so think about when you're super stressed, sympathetic, you get like really fast heartbeat. So basically what that's trying to do is just really increase all of the blood flow to the organs that are going to get you out of that situation. Um, So it actually tries to, it tells the heart by upregulating the firing of the SA node. Uh, That's the sinoatrial node, by the way. It's just basically the pacemaker of the heart. That's all you need to know. Um, And then... That's only in specific situations, but normally it's the parasympathetic system setting it at that usual really regular um, slow heart rate that's between 60 to 100. Great, exactly. So Molly talked a little bit there about how blood pressure actually has something to do with heart rate. So that's actually regulated through a neat little system called the baroreceptor reflex, and I'll give you a basic overview of that. Pretty much sitting in this little part of your carotid artery, which feeds your brain, is this little thing called the carotid sinus. And I'm going to assume you guys all know the atriums of the heart. They fill with blood before pumping down to the ventricles and pumping out. But in the atriums and in the carotid sinus, you've actually got little baroreceptors there. So baroreceptors are just things that sense pressure. So those two places are going to sense the amount of pressure, blood pressure that's flowing through there. They signal back to the brain back to a particular part of the pons called the solitary nucleus which then gives outflow through either the vagus nerve or through sympathetic channels to either increase or slow the heart rate so if you detect a low blood pressure at the carotid sinus you're going to get an increase in sympathetic tone that's going to try and increase the heart rate to compensate for that so moving on to our third regulatory mechanism we've got another one at the kidney does anyone want to take a stab at what that is ADH. Exactly. So ADH, very simply, is responsible for regulating the concentration of solutes in your blood. So that's the stuff dissolved in your blood. The amount of stuff dissolved in your blood, particularly sodium, is also going to regulate the amount of water and hence blood volume that you get back. So ADH is released from the posterior pituitary. The hypothalamus in the brain essentially senses how concentrated your blood is. If your blood is way, way too concentrated, it's going to release antidiuretic hormone. So antidiuretic hormone is going to stop you from peeing. That's what it means, antidiuretic hormone. So if your blood is too concentrated, you are going to get the release of antidiuretic hormone because then that's going to increase the amount of water that's retained at the kidney. And then that is actually going to drive up your blood volume as well. So there's one more system that regulates it. 
What's that? The vessels themselves got exactly. local regulation. Yep. And we don't really need to go into that. All it means is that the blood vessels themselves are going to try and take care of their pressure a little bit. So let's zip through some causes of high and low blood pressure. So what kind of things can shoot your blood pressure up a bit too high? I mean, we already said age. There's definitely certain drugs as well. Yeah, um, so those would be stimulant drugs mm. in particular. So like coke and meth. Mm. Um, and then we have atherosclerosis. So we got some like plaques and things building up in your vessels. Um, and then fluid overload as well. Exactly. And what about some of the causes of a low blood pressure? So uh, you're also talking about like the volume of the blood. So you're looking at the water. Um, rather than the blood as a whole. I mean, you got the hemorrhage, which basically just negates what I just said. But I think of it as a fluid issue. Uh, and dehydration is usually your main ones. Yep, awesome. Okay, so now that everyone is nice and bored from that hell of a lot of physiology, I'm going to try and take you guys back to the case to get you a little bit more interested. So... Just to rejig where we were at, we've gone into ED, there's a guy sitting there who was found wandering the streets with no shoes on, he is very sus and his blood pressure is really low. What are we going to do next? What's the first thing we should do next for this guy? Um, we're going to get some vital signs. Vitals are vital. That is something I always learnt in the first year of med school <laughs> and is something that I'm always going to take with me going forward. So, what are the vital signs? Okay, you got your respiratory rate. Yep. You got your, obviously, blood pressure we already talked about, uh, your heart rate, and your oxygen saturation, and your temperature. Fantastic. Those are our five big vital signs. So, why don't we take a second to go through each of them? Obviously, we're not going to go through blood pressure again, but we'll talk about the kind of things that regulate them and some of the things that they might point to if we're thinking about what, make my, what might make those vitals go wrong. So... Respirate, interestingly, actually was cited by a couple of studies as being one of the most important vital signs. In patients with a high respirate are most likely indicated to deteriorate and die soon. Um, it's also the easiest vital sign to fake and not do well on examination. So make sure you take your respirates well. What are the kind of things that will determine respirate? I was not prepared for that question. <laughs> okay, so as you can see, all of us are quite rusty on respirate. Um, okay, so for me, it's like low or high. So if it's super high, it's more about the carbon dioxide that's in the blood. So, yeah. so where does where does that carbon dioxide get sensed? In the ponds. Yeah. Thank okay. God. <laughs> yeah. So what happens, right? If you're not breathing properly, you can't blow off your CO2. If you can't blow off your CO2, it's going to build up in your blood and that CO2 is then going to get converted into acid, essentially. That acid is going to build up in your CSF and tell your ponds, oh my God, we have way too much carbon dioxide. Um, that's carbonic acid as well that it's getting converted to. After that, your ponds is essentially going to get a signal out through the phrenic nerve to your diaphragm that's going to tell your respirate to go way, way up. And that is how it's regulated. So, if we start off with some of the causes of a low respirate, what kind of things are going to give us a low respirate? Uh, again, as always, we have drugs. Yep. So, in that case, it's actually going to be your depressant drugs. So, opioids, particularly when they're mixed with alcohol, can just kind of mess with your ponds and mean you don't get that response happening. 
Mm-hmm. You could also have an issue with the pons itself, as we talked about. Yep, exactly. So strokes to the pons can drive your respirate down or increased cranial pressure that causes herniation of the pons can also do that. Now, um, moving on to high respirate, what are the kind of things that will drive someone's respirate up? Uh, we have acidosis. Yeah, exactly. So like we talked about before, when there is too much carbon dioxide... That's one of the ways that you can actually get an increased respirate. Too much carbon dioxide drives up your carbonic acid, which then in turn will lead to a higher respirate. That generally indicates a respiratory cause. Um, You can also have other kinds of acid floating around in your blood, um, like ketones, ketone acids from diabetes, um, generally type 1 diabetes, which can also lead to someone having a bit of a higher respirate. Um, Now we'll jump onto the next one. So temperature. What is a normal temperature? So normal temp, um, you go up to about 37 or 37 and a half. Um, it's a little bit of a gray area as to what's actually classified as the start of a like fever. Um, usually concrete is 38 and above. This is degrees Celsius for the uh, Americans. Um, and it can be technically a low-grade fever at... 37 and a half um and then obviously you've got low grade and high grade so basically 39 and above is what you term high grade cool awesome so does a fever always mean infection no what is one other cause of fever a thyrotoxicosis yeah so (laughs) a thyroid storm in particular secondary to a thyroid toxicosis is a big one that can trigger a fever um a quick editor's note. As you can see, we're all clearly in our thyroid module. A few far more common non-infectious causes of a fever include heat stroke, certain inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, or a malignancy. Just jumping back super quickly, I think we forgot to tell everyone what a normal respirator is. So does someone want to... Ooh, that's 12 to 20, yep. but we, people don't normally get too concerned unless it's over 25 in terms of a high respirate. Yeah, perfect. There we go. So now jumping on to heart rate. What is a normal heart rate? Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. We forgot. Sorry, this is my fault. The hypothermic levels. So like less than 35 oh, okay. degrees. Yeah. Then someone will be cold and that is yeah. not good. You want to warm them up? <laughs> okay. Heart rate? Heart rate, well, normal is around 60 to 100. Um, but we got to keep in mind that, like, some people are, like, athletes um, who have very low resting heart rate. So it, it could be, like, 60 and we wouldn't be too concerned. But if you just have someone walk into the ED with it below 60, you are concerned. I was, um, I was in hospital the other week and the nurses kept freaking out because my resting heart rate was 45. <laughs> and they were, like, coming 45? in all the time being, like... What's what's wrong with this guy? Is there something bad? And I was like, I think it's just always there. But mm. yeah. So basically, hard and fast rule: if you're worried, do an ECG, and then you can see if it's pathological or not. Pretty much. I think we've already talked as well about what sets up the heart rate. Um, what are some of the causes of a high heart rate? Arrhythmia. Never forget that, guys. Yep. So mm-hmm. tachyarrhythmia is definitely. Um, we've also got things that increase your sympathetic tone. So something as easy as being stressed can do it. 
Um, obviously, if you've got a low blood pressure, that can also drive your heart rate up. And then drugs as well. So your cocaine, your MDMA is all going to spike your heart rate up as well because they're sympathomimetic. Um, low heart rate. What are we thinking there? You can have hypothermia. I will never, ever forget my very first medical exam and they put an ECG up that was like really low heart rate. A normal ECG though, couldn't find any arrhythmia or anything like that. And uh, yeah, hypothermia was it. They got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think another thing as our favorite drugs. So we have depressants. Yeah. This time causing a lower heart rate. Perfect. And um, my uh, my favorite cause of a low heart rate personally is obviously something that starts with the brain. And that would be the Cushing's reflex. So if you have any kind of bleed in your brain, anything increasing the intracranial pressure, that can mess with your pons and drive your heart rate down um, in an effort to actually try and stop getting more blood to your brain to stop that rise in pressure, which is super interesting. Um, our last vital is our oxygen sats. So when do we start getting worried about oxygen sats? Uh, when they're below 97. Yeah. Uh, nah. I would say getting below 95 is when you start getting worried. I mean, it depends also in what patient, what their background is. Um, You guys will come to learn, or if you have already learned COPD, stuff like that can affect your baseline. Yeah, exactly. With someone with COPD, we want about 88 to 92 SATs. But just pushing super, super quickly on, SATs are actually just measuring very simply the amount of oxygen that's bound to hemoglobin in your blood or the percentage of those hemoglobins that have oxygen bound to them. Um, And that is really all we need to know about the vitals. So, moving on now, we've taken this guy's vitals. So, his vital signs have come back as respirate 22, temperature 37, heart rate 110, and his oxygen sats are sitting at 97%. So... What are we thinking this picture kind of looks like? Um, well, we look like most vitals are kind of okay, except for BP. That's the one that's concerning again. 90 over 58, that's a bit low. Exactly. So his heart rate is also a little bit up. Bit up. If we're looking at someone with a low blood pressure and a high heart rate, what could we be thinking? Shock. Shock, exactly. And we'll go into that a little bit later. But first, I'm going to take you guys back to the case. So... The first year med student asks if the man is GCS zero. You look at him for a second, and then you realize you forgot to actually do a GCS on this guy. So you do your exam. So do we want to walk everyone through a very, very quick GCS? For sure. But quick thing first, there's no such thing as GCS zero. Because exactly. it's a scale of numbers. That's because the they let first year med students into the hospital. Hmm. The lowest on the scale is one for each category. So impossible. So it's three different categories. We first of all have... Whose notification was that? Um, eye opening. Sorry. And it can be to sound. So maybe if the patient heard that sound, <laughs> they might have opened their eyes. That would have given them a score of three for that category. We also have verbal response um, and then motor response. So whether they're able to move their limbs and in response to something. Yeah, so just on that, the moving limbs is in response to command, and that's the same as a verbal response. Right, Me right now, I would be five for a verbal response because I'm orientated, maybe a four because sometimes I'm getting a bit confused. My words make sense, so I can't be a three. I'm not just making random noises, so I'm definitely not a two, and I'm speaking, so I can't be a one because that would be no sound at all. So our patient 
that we're dealing with right now. His eyes are open when we look at him. So what would that be for eye-opening, Caitlin? His eyes are open when we look at him, so he's spontaneously opening his eyes, so that's a four. Yep, and he mutters something random about the tractors. We don't really know what that is, so what do we think we'd put him at for a verbal response, Molly? Four. Four. Perfect. He's a bit confused. And I, or you ask him to stand up. He doesn't really stand up. You give him a bit of a pat on the shoulder to see what's going on, and he just sort of shrugs that shoulder that you touch. So where do we think we'd put him for motor? Five. Five. Exactly. So are we a little bit worried about this guy, considering he's at a GCS of 12 overall? Yeah, so that goes into the moderate. So you get mild, moderate, and severe. So GCS is out of 15, so that the GCS 15 is like everything's working perfectly. Um, I'm always sitting at at least a 14. <laughs> okay. Um, and then, yeah, so moderate is 9 to 12, and then severe is 8. Um, and there's a really good rhyme, so GCS 8, Intubate, that I've never forgotten. I love that one. Yeah. yeah, perfect. So, we'll jump back to the case really, really quickly. And for time's sake, we'll say that they also did a really quick urinalysis on this guy. So, if we've got an elderly person who's come into the ED being a bit confused, why are we doing a urinalysis? Um, well, a lot of edel- elderly people, when they get a UTI, often get confused. So we always want to give a urinalysis for an elderly, confused person. Exactly. And that kind of confusion is something that we normally call delirium, secondary to UTI in the older people. So if we do a urine dipstick on this guy, what other kind of things we can get out of a urine dipstick? Cool. So urine dip, by the way, is the exact same as urinalysis. Some people use it interchangeably. I haven't really found any difference. Uh, Michael is yelling at me saying it's not the same, but oh well. Um, so first off, you'll um, have either a manual, which will be um, like color coding, or you'll have this really nice fancy machine that will spit out all these numbers, which is great. Um, but first it goes through pH. So this is in response to like your systemic acidosis or alkalosis. Um, of your blood so beforehand we were talking about respiratory rate and why you might get increased to get rid of uh, co2 stuff like that Um, specific gravity so that's a really fancy way of saying how dense the liquid is so super dense means it's really viscous and that means it's very concentrated um, so obviously the other way is a low specific gravity means it's not very dense and means it's diluted so you this can tell you about your hydration status you got your protein um and this will tell you about how well your kidneys are filtering um so if you have proteins you're worried about that filter um then you have the leukocytes and the nitrites which by the way leukocytes are white blood cells and these are the ones that fight infection so if you have leukocytes you're thinking about a uti so you leukocytes are usually in the blood so the only reason they would be in the urinary tract and in the urine is because they've been called there because there's something there right and then the nitrites um are products of the bacteria that's actually colonizing in there so this is not something that our body normally produces um 
the then you have blood you've got blood in the urine you can either have um macro and micro uh hematuria and that's the medical term for it um but basically i think about okay what is there something in the tract that is irritating it and causing blood to come out from the systemic system into the urinary tract so this can be mechanical um such as a stone uh, or it can be the irritation from the bacteria then you have ketones so this is really relevant for diabetic patients um and stuff like diabetic ketoacidosis which we just call dka uh then you got your bilirubin in the urine it's called urobilinogen so that's just a metabolite uh, what it's been converted to and this gives the urine its yellowy dark color so if you have a lot of urinobilinogen a urobilinogen <laughs> um you will get quite dark um urine like more brown um and this is uh indicative of liver failure uh, and then you've got glucose so that's really telling you about diabetes and how bad because the blood can only hold so much great that was awesome molly thank you so much for that um just one more like super quick thing with the blood um molly said you can either have your micro blood or your macro blood um totally right there's one more level with that as well though you can either have um intact red blood cells or you can have lysed red blood cells so if the red blood cells have been lysed that gens that tends to indicate that there's a problem with the glomerulus the filter of your kidney and if the red blood cells haven't been lysed that tends to indicate that there's some kind of problem downstream from that more distal to the kidney so something in your ureters um, or your urethra something like that so moving back to the case um, you do his urine dip and everything is normal except his specific gravity is way too high you look at the urine and it is super 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 dark as well there's no leukocytes no nitrites are negative um, there's no blood protein nothing else in the urine other than a concentrated urine so what do we think is wrong with this guy i reckon that suggests that he's a bit dehydrated not enough fluid to go through the kidneys and pee out <laughs> exactly so what is the first thing we're gonna do for him replace the fluid exactly we're just gonna put in some cannulas <laughs> and give this guy a little bit of fluid um just a quick note with this if someone is really really hypernatremic so that means they don't have enough fluid and they've got too much salt hyper na um, you do actually have to be a little bit careful with how you correct their fluids because if you do it too quickly you can actually mess with their brain um, and lead to an osmotic demyelination coma or something along those lines so if we move on now basically this guy came into the ed with shock his blood pressure was down his heart rate was up he was showing some of the signs of shock when you go back to look at him he was a little bit clammy um his capillary refill time was a bit low and obviously his gcs was decreased so what is shock uh shock is generally where your body is not getting enough oxygen yeah exactly um, that's the easiest way to it. You're not getting oxygen delivery to the cells that make up your body. That is important. So thinking really broadly, there's four kinds of shock. Do we want to go through and name those four? 
Uh, yeah, so we have hypovolemic, obstructive, cardiogenic, and distributive. Okay, so Molly, do you want to tell us about cardiogenic shock? Sure. Um, so cardiogenic is basically where the original issue of maintaining blood pressure is with the heart. So usually it's like the heart itself is failing, so you can get an acute MI or... Myocardial infarction. <laughs> or... Um, God, what's the other one? You could have maybe like a structural issue, so maybe like a valve isn't working well. Arrhythmia. Mm. Really oh, yeah, arrhythmia. dude. I just told you guys before not to forget about that. That's so shame. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Um, Caitlin, do you want to tell us about hypovolemic shock? Um, sure. So, kind of as the name suggests, we have hypo, so not enough volemic, not enough volume of blood. So, generally, that means that perhaps you're bleeding somewhere and you've lost a lot of blood, so you don't have enough there. Or maybe you're dehydrated. So, again, you don't have enough volume in your blood to pump it around the whole body, give your whole body oxygen. Great. Super, super easy. So, the last two kinds of shock are where things get a tiny bit more tricky. So, I think of obstructive shock is, you know, obstructive shock, it's all in the name. It's something that's obstructing the blood from flowing properly. So, the two main types of that are a pulmonary embolism, which is a big clot in your lungs, or a cardiac tamponade, which is just a bleed or some kind of fluid in your pericardial sac that sits around your heart. Um, a PE, right, you've got this massive clot in the lungs, your heart is trying to plump, pump blood out through the lungs. If the clot is too big, it's not going to be able to get it out. It's going to start failing. You're not going to get oxygen supply to the peripheries and you'll go into an obstructive shock. Same deal as a tamponade. If, the cardi- if your heart is too significantly tamponaded, it can't fill in diastole, which means it's not going to be able to fill up enough to pump the blood out. Very simple, and you're going to go into shock from that. Distributive shock is a little bit more tricky. Sweet. So I want to take over this one because I did the case like the first year. Uh, So distributive, the name kind of doesn't make sense, like common sense initially. So um, the case I had, which really makes sense a lot for me is like someone has a car crash and their um neural status is impacted and like a spinal cord injury yeah yeah yeah, that's what i'm looking at right so basically you know the what we're talking about the autonomic nervous system has control of the vessels right so basically what happens is that that control is just gone and the um the vessels just relax so basically, you've got this really big pipe now with not a lot in it, and it just trickles. Uh, same thing happens in sepsis. So the bacteria give off a toxin that makes the vessels do the exact same thing. Different mechanism, but essentially same product. And then anaphylaxis as well. You get all of these inflammatory markers that just make your vessels just blow up. Yeah, vasodilation and leaky vessels, basically. Yeah. Yeah. All those histamines, and it you know it pretty much means that the blood is there, but the blood is either moving too quickly in some of them, or not moving effectively enough to actually supply it to the peripheral tissues. Great. So now to wrap up the case for you guys, after some fluids, Joe wakes up and he is totally fine. He told you that he was trying to go for as many hours without drinking as possible because he read online that he thought it was actually good for you. 
You make her a note to remind the new med student that this isn't actually the truth and we discharge Joe home when he's feeling a lot better. Okay, great. That is the end of our first ever episode. Um, we apologize if any of it was a little bit rusty. Thank you for listening um, and be sure to tune in next time for our next episode. Thanks, guys. Thank you. This is Med Hub. <laughs> <laughs> this is Med Hub. A jingle will follow. <laughs>